Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. This classic stuff really provides the basis for the whole sort of area. So there's nothing wrong with it. So saying that it's sort of old or whatever doesn't make it bad. Um, this is the stuff that, this is where you know, we talked about um, imprinting the other day. This is the kind of work that people like Lorenz, like Timber, uh, like uh, Jerry Hogan at U of T. This, this is the approach they take. So, First thing you have to look at, or first thing you have to realize, is that animals can do many different things. There's a lot, they're making choices. Now, when I use the word choice, I'm not using that as like a quote, conscious decision. It's, it's shorthand. Okay? So, they can allocate their time here, or here, or here. It doesn't mean that there's any sort of free will or anything like that. Okay? I don't think anything has free will, but that's a whole other discussion. By the way, when did never become a word? I just did that. Whole nother. It's a whole different deal. So an animal could forage, go look for food. An animal could defend a territory. Uh, an animal could look for mates. So, you know, these are just you know, three things. They're pretty typical things that ethologists look at. Um, the problem then is when do you do what and why? Usually, a single behavior is done at a time, a single kind of behavior. So, usually, you're foraging, you're not also looking for mates at the same time. Right? And in fact, you usually, it's usually maladaptive to do two things at once. Because um, if you're doing, if you're foraging and looking for mates, you're not going to do either of those as well as if you did just one of them. If you do just one of them, you're going to put more resources into it. Uh, we might today say more cognitive resources into it. So you'll do a better job. Right? It's like people talk all the time about multitasking. Humans can't do that very well. No animals do that very well. Um, most people think that they can, and it simply isn't true. It just simply isn't true. To see a whole neuro, neuroscientific discussion of that, go back to my blog, dayproject.com, search back to an episode of Futures in Biotech I was on, where we probably had the world expert on this uh, topic on, and we were all hitting on laughing about how people thought that, oh yeah, well, I can multitask, you just you can't. So you can't do it, neither can a rabbit, neither can a nematode. If you do two things at once, you don't do either of them as well as you do if you're paying attention to one of them at a time. It's also maladaptive to do things in the wrong order. And that's in a couple of ways. First thing would be, what if you're for it? What if you're looking for mates in the fall? Well, that's not going to help you much. Most things made in the spring. What a young man's fancy I don't know what that was. <laughs> so looking for mates in the fall is going to be a mistake. Foraging when you're supposed to be asleep might end up making you a foragee, not a forager. So you might have to get eaten. Also doing things in the wrong order. Let's say you've got a complicated mating dance. 
Okay? We'll talk later in the term again about the infant fly coming up though. The infant fly courtship ritual. In fact, is that that might even be the next class? Um, it's very specific. You might be like, I'm in the wrong class. <laughs> no, seriously, think about that. That's exactly the case right there. It came in the wrong class. We've all done that. I told you I've been doing that in chemistry class. Well, I never took chemistry in university except for that one fourth year seminar I sat in on in first year. <coughs> uh, I don't think I'm supposed to be here, but I'm embarrassed. That, that, that was the right move. He's going, that's it, I'm out. <laughs> but that's exactly, that's wrong order. It's supposed, probably supposed to be in this room at a different time. But think about doing something, a complicated courtship ritual, where there's a series of different behaviors you have to do. And so the male does it, and then the female is it, is basically chooses the male that does the dance the best. That's typically how these things work. Well, if you do the dance in the wrong order, the female's not going to choose you. Choo-choo, choose you. <laughs> That's great. 25-year-old Simpsons references, and everybody gets them. I love it. The Simpsons has been long, longer than most of you have been alive. That's bizarre. <laughs> I remember watching the very first episode on a train on the way to London from Toronto with Isabel, who was at that point had been my girlfriend for four months. We were watching it on a little handheld TV I had. Because I've always been <laughs> So it's always going to be maladaptive to screw up the, the way you organize your behavior. So this is actually a really important kind of question. So you can then extrapolate that there has to be some sort of central control mechanism that determines when an animal does something and also what order it does those things in. Right? Now, I think we would all probably determine that that's somewhere in the brain. <laughs> right? It's in the black box somewhere. Now, see, that's the interesting thing here. You can look at this from a neuroscience angle, which is totally interesting, and I'm, as you probably know, very sympathetic to that kind of approach. But you don't have to to explain things. We talked about how you have to, if you want to truly understand behavior, you have to look at it from all kinds of different angles. Function and cause. And you can look at causal mechanisms and not care at all about how it works in the brain. Right? You really can. Someone else does that work and you don't think it's bad, but it just doesn't interest you. Uh, so that came and visited our, uh, when I was an undergrad working in a lab doing a summer end circuit. It's got John Pierce from, um, I believe the time he was at the University of Cardiff. So, and he was visiting, and he was talking to us about our research. And I was running this, this rat spatial stuff, and a friend of mine, Gordon, was running this stuff on hippocampus and, and accumbens. And he says to John Pierce, who looks so much like a British professor that it's scary. He looked, you know, remember the old Doctor Who, the big hair in the 60s, and the, and the hat and the patches on the shoe. That's what he looked like. It was 43 degrees out. He had that on and a scarf. It's like, okay. Very smart guy. And he said, let's tell me about your research. I said, well, I'm just doing this stuff with some rats and such and what have you. Remember, you know, my friend Gordon said, oh, I'm doing this stuff on uh, hippocampus and accumbens. Are you familiar with that? He said, I believe that's somewhere in the black box, is it not? <laughs> but that's wonderful because he was looking at learning mechanisms. He wasn't looking, he didn't care about brains. He cared that animals had them. 
But that's it. And that's what we're talking about here. We can talk about how this is going to be a cognitive mechanism, a neural mechanism. We don't have to postulate how it works as far as the wiring to still understand something about it. A really nice example of a control mechanism can be found in what are called homeostatic systems. These are the simplest kind of things. Um, something like thermoregulation. How does an animal heat at a fixed temperature? That's the question. Um, there's a set point. So for humans, it's what? 37 degrees Celsius, right? That's your body temperature. should be. You have what are called effectors, and that's just it's, it's some neural mechanism. We don't know how it works. Well, we do, but we don't have to worry about it. You have a variable you're controlling temperature, and then you're detecting, so you detect the temperature, and then it feeds back to the set points, so you get a comparison. So it's like, I'm... 36 degrees, which you've got, you got chills, and they're multiplying. <laughs> wow, grease references people get, That's good. which is sad because I hate using this. I really hate them. Um, 36 degrees goes back, compares to set point. Set point says 36 degrees. That's cold. Let's warm you up. Let's make you shiver. Vasoconstriction, so you might. Uh, your your, your uh, <coughs> blood vessels constrict. Your hair might stand up on end, right? So you get your fur. You ever seen? Probably very few of you go out walking in the woods in the dark with that Blair Witch Project and all. <laughs> all right, I'm so scared. And. <laughs> References that are 15 years old. So, if you do though, if you go to the woods today, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's just for me. Um, you might see early in the morning, you'll see, say, birds, if they're uh, chickadees, things like that, and they're all puffy. They look different. They look like little puffballs with legs. And what they're doing is they're keeping themselves warm. So it's, yeah, it's cute, Maddie, until you realize that. You get it about a half degree colder and they just drop dead. <laughs> so it's not that cute. Um, when we start the lab with our chickpeas, we would immediately put them under um, heat lamps. And we would give them, um, you very gently hold the bird and inject highly concentrated sugar water into their mouth to warm them up. To, so we have the avian first aid kit, which is a whole bunch of sugar. <laughs> it worked usually, or they died of a heart attack. Well, they were close anyway, so it's like you do each candor and say. So what they're doing is they're keeping themselves warm. And you have this to this day, this vestigial thing. When you get goosebumps, that's pyloerection. That's your that's your fur standing up on it. You just don't have any fur anymore. Right? Get you warm. Or the other day you get cold, you get dilation, you get sweating or panting. Right? So you might sweat. This is something humans do. Humans, um, this is something very special that humans do, is the ability to sweat, to cool down. Nothing else does this. One of the things that gave us the advantage to be able to run just a little bit longer in the sun. Um, but you'll see dogs panting, things like that. Does anything else sweat? 
think so. Like the expression of sweat, like a pig, pigs don't sweat. I think their, their feet, the, the pads of their feet, they can sweat, and I think they can pant. They, they pant. I think they sweat. I can't think of anything else. Does anybody know that? Because I don't think anything else sweats like we do. Yeah, you got to answer. I'm sorry? Oh, don't handles sweat. Really? Awesome. You should do your paper on that. Hippo sweat. <laughs> if I approve something, that's not your topic. I just did. That's cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Okay, so it's hippos and humans. You're, you have to be an animal that starts with an H. But it's so rare. How many horses sweat? <laughs> Horses do sweat. In their armpits. Ooh. <laughs> Aren't they leg bits really though? <laughs> I'm not gonna judge. Yeah. Most animals don't sweat. We sweat and we, we sweat all over our bodies, which is a pretty special thing that humans can do. Um now <coughs> the feedback mechanisms can be positive or negative or both. It could be and think about this, this is a lot like how your um Thermostat was gone. Right? You turn the thermostat to a certain point and it turns the heat up, and then when it gets hot enough, it stops. Right? For those of you playing at home, that's how, you, that's how it works. You don't just turn the thermostat all the way up. Warm up your house any more quickly. I remember watching my old landlord have a discussion with some pens about that. And I was paying my rent back and forth. It was interesting because he was. Let me explain to you, idiot, was just funny. And then he took my check. He said, it's so nice having smart pens like you, Isabel, because so many of mine aren't. So this is, this doesn't seem, this is the notion, and this would be something like, food would be like this if you're hungry. Thirst is, is, a, is, a, is a regulatory sort of homeostatic feedback mechanism. Um, in fact, animals can get specific hungers. You deprive a rat of potassium for a month, no, a month, probably a long couple weeks, and you give it a choice between a potassium-rich diet and some other diets, then just food. They'll choose the potassium-rich diet even though they can't taste the potassium. Right? This may explain why pregnant women get cravings. It may. This is where the theories. No, I don't think anybody really quite understands that whole thing. Okay. So that's kind of interesting that you might ask yourself, what about behavior? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, there's behavior in there. I guess shivering is behaving. It's not interesting behavior. We can look at the behavior systems approach. And this is a, the classical ecological approach to things. There's also an approach to learning that's like this. That Bill Timberlake, no relation to Justin, uh, and Sarah Shuttleworth uh, took uh, her earlier in her career, him took the whole thing. So there are different systems that serve different functions. So this, the nice thing about this is you're looking at a causal thing, but you've got a functional angle. I like that. So you might say feeding or mating or grooming. And the different system is put into action by what are called releasing stimuli. And these are just environmental factors. Um, and also by internal mechanisms. So if you're hungry and you see food, you eat. Right? If you're looking for mates and you see a receptive female, you mant her. 
So this is really the classical approach to ethology. This is the way it was done. And probably to a point, still is done. And by the way, there are thermoregulatory behaviors that happen that are behavioral a lot more than just shiver. There's a great experiment that was done about, about rabbits. It's a classic, it's in science, I can't remember the citation, unfortunately. What's the function of getting a fever? Raise body temperature. For? Killing the bacteria. Exactly. Killing the infection. Yeah. It's not the thing itself usually that gives you the fever. It's your body's it's a defense mechanism. You get warm enough to kill whatever's in you. And hopefully not kill you. So that's exactly right. Now, that's what we do. In fact, even babies, human babies can do that. Chip babies have fevers. Uh, babies aren't so good at thermoregulation. You'll, there's a, if you've ever had kids, or when you do have kids, one of the strangest things is that when they're a few weeks old, and half their body's warm, the other half's cold. And it freaks you out until you look it up and realize, oh, I see, it's totally normal. Burning up here, ice cold here. That's weird. All it says in the book, it's fine. Rabbits can't do that, baby rabbits. They don't have fevers. They don't have a system yet when they're babies. What do you think a baby rabbit called? Pup. Rats are pups. Let's say pup. Somebody look that up. What's a, what's a baby rabbit called? I want to know now. A kit. Very nice. Like the car from Night Rider. So, David Hasselhoff shows up. He's really hammered. He's eating a cheeseburger. Um, so, these little kits, I love it. Um, they can't have fevers. So, what are they going to do when they have an infection? They got to go somewhere warm. What they would normally do is snuggle up to their mother. But the question is, what maybe the mother can detect that they're sick? And she snuggles up to that. So the way the experiment works is, let's see if it's the, a behavioral mechanism in the kits. Yeah? So what they do is they inject them with a non-lethal infection. And then, put a heat lamp in a cage, like they're in the open field kind of cage. And watch what happens. And guess who goes over where the heat lamp is? The sick rats, or not rats, uh, uh, rats. That's who goes over there. Not the healthy ones. And it gets rid of their infection. It's a really neat thing. So they're actually detecting that they're sick, and they have what, what's called a behavioral fever. Very neat. So they made my first album, Behavioral Fever. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Okay. Now, some of you guys that took learning with me have heard about dust bathing in Burmese red jungle fowl. This is the modern ancestor of today's Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> this is the original chicken. This is like this is the original <coughs> recipe. This is way back. <laughs> so, they're basically chickens. Now, this behavior, they do dust bathing. Some animals bathe, some birds bathe in water. You must have seen those bird bats. Right? 
You'll see a bird jumping around in a little bath and then shaking the water off and flying away. Well, some birds also bathe in dust. And that's one of them is the Burmese red jungle flower. What it does is it cleans lipids, you know, fat, oil, out of their feathers. How's that work? Well, basically the, the, the dirt clumps onto the oil and then you shake it off and it comes off in hunks. I'm not suggesting that's how you should bathe. <laughs> but you could give it a shot. You look like pig pen on uh, peanuts, right? The guy that's fall around with a big cloud of dust everywhere. Maybe he was just dust bathing. <laughs> Good grief. So, it's not an uncommon behavior in birds. So what do these guys do? So here's a, that's a Burmese red jungle fowl right there. Okay, and you can see it looks basically like a chick. So the first thing it does is starts fluffing, fluffing up some dust. And it does this with its uh, claws and by shaking its body. So it basically creates a cloud of dust. It creates a cloud of dust. Next, it does a, what is called a bill scratch, which gets the dust up on the neck. So see, it's doing this, like that. It's scratching its bill up against its body and on the rim, like that. So this is getting the dust around its neck, which is where it ends up getting most of the, the lipids. It's like it has greasy hair, except it's feathers. scratching like crazy, and it works up, like I said, almost a cloud. Most of in the lab, this work is done in sawdust. Uh, you give them sawdust, they didn't really find sawdust, and in fact, they, you can actually see it looks like a cloud of sawdust in the air. A lot of this work was done by Jerry Hogan at the University of Toronto. Easily the most sarcastic man you will ever meet. And you think, Dave, you said all these people were Dutch. He did a postdoc in Holland and married a Dutch woman. I'm just saying. You can't avoid the Dutch. <laughs> this goes on, by the way, for about 20 minutes. Right? Because you've got to get enough dust on your body and you've got to get it spread out enough that it's actually made clumps of the oil and dust together, and you got to get it off by shaking around. Some of you look like grossed out. They're chickens. Probably it's people. That's right, delicious. I I don't think you'd want to eat these. Not because they wouldn't taste good, but because they would be there's free range, and then there's animals that are running around all the time that are tough as a tire, and I think that's what they do. If you were a survivor, 
There you go. Survivor of Burma. They send that one yet? <clears throat> They're running out of places, right? I say what they should do is just drop them all on Baffin Island in November. <laughs> Show ends, right? Oh man, we're screwed. Okay. So, it's actually really complicated behavior. Last time I said 20 minutes, half an hour. And here's, this is Jerry Hogan's uh, diagram. Here's the behavior system sort of diagram. You have um, sort of a control mechanism that's, that's like a clock. The dust bathing mechanism kicks in, and it involves a bill, a bill, bill rate, a scratch, a vertical wing shake, and a body shake. The vertical wing shake is up and down. Here we meet Jerry Hogan, ask him to do his impression of Jungle Fowl doing this, because it's great, and I won't do it. But up and down, they shake their whole body. Right. Now, it's interesting, so you've got this internal mechanism, a body clock here, but you've also got dust as an external stimulus. Note, however, that this is a dashed line. It's not a solid line. In other words, this is telling you that you don't need dust to dust bathe. What? So I'll look at that in a pretty second. This really is pretty complicated behavior. It's got all these subparts, and they're done in a particular order, always, for all members of the species. Everybody else stays the same. Probably because it works. Right? You wouldn't want to shake and then do the like the body shake you wanted, that's that's your, that's basically rinsing off. Right? You wouldn't want to do that first and do all this other stuff, because then you'd just be a dirty, oily bird. <laughs> right? So it is pretty complicated behavior. Somebody left an apple for the teacher, which I think is kind of funny. I don't think it's for me, so I'm just going to leave it there. And maybe it'll rot. <laughs> so science. Look at all the Dutch names. That's Klaus Verstegard, Hogan, and Kruit. I don't know what Kruit's first name is, but it's probably like Hans. He's guessing because he's Dutch. Is he good Dutch last name? Uh, no, but like the Dutch side of my family. Oh yeah? Yeah, I'm born. There you go. Yeah. My, mom, oh, my, my, my mother's mother's maiden name is Van Hoch, which is some Dutch thing. Because it's got Van, it's German, it's Dutch, right? And Vaughn is German. You can probably still switch to that. Yeah, I don't want to. But that's a fine name. <laughs> it's not Dutch. No. It's crazy. Hey, we're having our own class up here, Josh and I, so it's like, <laughs> So, they found the jungle fowl don't need dust to dust bathe. Needs to be the Burmese stupid jungle fowl. Um, so, what did they do? They got two groups of chicks. Like little, not ladies, I mean like little birds. <laughs> We have some chicks. Is anybody talk like that? You know, Wow. Anyway. <coughs> so they get these two groups of chicks. One has been raised normally. And most of you that are concerned with animal welfare and stuff should be pleased to know, in fact, they're, they're basically free-range chickens. 
uh, in a great big uh, aviary that's probably half the size of this room, and they're just walking around. It's really pretty cool. And then there's another one where there's uh, the aviary where there's one rooster and like his 15 ladies, his uh, <laughs> hens, and the roosters would be. And I remember when Andrew, this was our, when our lab techs, when Andrew had to clean that out, like he'd go in. Cautiously grab the rooster because if you go anywhere near the heads of the rooster, they just he'll attack. And they got claws and stuff. It was always interesting to watch that. The heads just where they run around. The rooster you had to grab and like put it in a special cage while it cleaned up. So you got these chicks and they they're cute as hell by the way. And you hear tweet tweet tweet, it's great. And then they get to be at juveniles and it's the ugliest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> a juvenile chicken is the ugliest. Like a, I thought chickens are fine looking at them. Baby chicken. And they're about this big, so they're like teenage chickens. They're the worst looking things you've ever seen. That's right there is where you actually see the dinosaur, the fact that birds are dinosaurs. You see it right there. Because it looks like it's got great big eyes and it's looking really good. It's like some pathetic dinosaur, which is what it is. So they let them get to maturity, which doesn't take too long, a couple months. And then they test them. One group's never had dust. They, they live on a wire mesh floor with dust underneath it. So they've seen dust. But they've never actually dust bathed. And then you have another group that has always had dust on the floor. And then you give them a choice. They see what happens when you remove the dust completely. You know what happens to the ones that grow up with dust? They just don't dust bathe. They need this stimulus. But the ones that had, they saw dust that only had wire mesh, they happily, basically pantomime dust bath. And they do it at the same time every day, right around noon. Until the clock. The other ones don't, the ones that had dust, they just don't. But then when you give them dust, they give them this extra long bout. It's like, I haven't had a bath in days. Right, so it's a whole different setup. So they actually don't need dust to dust aid. This system will develop. This behavior system will develop without the stimulus, without the releasing stimulus. That's kind of neat. That's, again, showing we talked about development the other day. That's the idea of experience dependent and experience expected behavior. Dependent, if you have dust, you will need dust to dust bathe. Expected, you will all develop the ability to dust bathe. Or that there's what's called a, um, a fixed action pattern. Okay? So questions about that? It's kind of neat, it's kind of neat work. I mean, Jerry's life's work was on dust bathing as a way to you know, look at, uh, at different behaviors. Um, Hogan and Van Boxel, not Dutch, but a Dutch name from Sudbury. Well, sort of some sort of master's thesis, Francis Van Boxel. But again, Dutch, just strange. She found it, uh, and Jerry found that dust maiden was actually rhythmic at 14 days post hatch. So, in other words, it was showing up at noon, and in fact, in young, it shows up at noon and at 4 p.m. Before they go to bed at night, they have a bath, but also when at noon. When they get a little older, they stop 
doing that. And by 14 days, that's going to start to look like ugly birds. They, they aren't cute anymore. And if you have, again, if you've ever seen, anybody here actually ever seen a young chicken, like a juvenile chicken? Because it's the most ugly thing. Yeah, they're ugly. They're just, no, they do it. Yeah, they're just not super ugly birds. There's been some cool stuff recently with chickens, and they, because you know, you know that birds are dinosaurs, right? Like that's all been settled. That birds are part of that family, or not family, uh, class. So there actually are genes in the chicken, like there are in every bird, to have a bony tail, like dinosaurs, like the classic dinosaurs did. But they're turned off. There's been a couple of groups that have been able to turn the gene on, and then the chickens hatch with bony tails, and they look like they're from Jurassic Park. <laughs> awesome! <laughs> Extinction, we can make our own animals! <laughs> All right. So this is kind of cool stuff. I like this stuff. Okay, another great example... Well, this isn't a single behavior, but almost all behavior of all animals is temporally organized some way. I mean, it happens at a certain time of day. So dust bathing is one of many examples. And think about this. Well, we talked about already about the purr gene and the tau gene and how they hybridize almost like 99% with genes like that in slime mold. Everything on this planet is rhythmic. So there are biological rhythms to everything. One of the big problems we would have living on Mars, besides, you know, not being any oxygen, that'd be a big one. But if they could make some kind of dome, right? People could live there, have a colony. The days are 24 hours long. They're like 26 hours long on Mars? That would be a problem for most people. Because you have jet lag all the time. You'd have Mars lag. <laughs> so rhythms show up in, in all animals, but all living, pretty much all living things too, have a rhythmicity to them. And circadian, from the Latin meaning about circa dia, circa is approximately, and dia is a day. Circadian, right? So almost all animals, all and plants and, and bugs and like what I mean by bugs, I mean like bacteria. Everything has circadian rhythms. It's quite cool. And that's because with the earth and the rotation. Right? The environment changes on a rhythmic schedule, so therefore behavior should change on a rhythmic schedule. Or even growth patterns and signals. So this is just selection at work, and this is something that was selected for, it's got to be a long time ago, considering it's almost the same gene in, in, in going from molds to humans. So it's been around for a while. Now the thing is, the cool thing is that the circadian rhythm isn't exactly 24 hours. It's about 24 and a half 
So we can look at how do we entrain circadian rhythms? How do we reset our clock? Well, we have to detect your sensory receptors and they detect, they detect sunlight. So we actually, we being humans, we being other animals, humans have sensory receptors, um, photoreceptors in their eyes, but not ones we use for seeing. Ones we use simply to detect is the sun coming up. Other animals, uh, there are quite a few uh, lizards that actually, instead of it being in their eyes, they have a photosensitive patch in the back of their head, on their neck. It doesn't see anything, it just detects that there's sunlight. Just detects there's sunlight. In fact, this is probably how eyes evolved. Before there were ever eyes, there were still animals that probably had these sensitive patches to detect light. And you can see how that could evolve actually pretty quickly. Because if you've got a patch of skin, and then you just got this little area here that's photosensitive right here. You can see how very quickly, if you want to focus that in any way, the next step, so there's where it is, just make that a little bit concave like that, so the focus a bit more. And then you can see it's not much of a step to make it like that. And then, well, why not protect this with a clear layer of skin? Oh, look, an eye. Eyes can evolve very quickly. And eyes have evolved. Jeez, I don't even know the number. It's, it's, it's over 100 times different evolutionary histories of vision. But it's all, it looks like it all comes from the same place. One of the arguments often used by creationists, they say, where could eyes come from? What use would half an eye be? <laughs> right there. To detect the rotation of the freaking earth and when it's nighttime. That's useful. Well, sure, but what about that other thing? Apparently creationists all talk like this. I don't know what that, who that guy is I'm doing there. <laughs> so part of the eyes actually can be quite useful. And it, it, we... we we, with us, it's actually in our eyes, uh, and it goes through the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the SCN. We know about SCN that it controls circadian rhythms, the Martin Ralph stuff. So we have that. Um, we have a clock mechanism. It's a pacemaker. That's the SCN in, in mammals. And we, it, it, these are just some examples of different behavior systems, or just systems in general that. that depend on what's happening with this clock. Okay. Yeah, as it says here, SCN is therefore a place for true. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know where I photocopied that from. I won't photocopy it, I scanned it. I photocopied it, I'm just holding it up. Use this thing. I hate this thing. It's one of those, like an overhead projector. I hate overhead projectors. Just for the, for the listeners on the internet, I'm explaining what I hate. I'm full of hate. I've got a lot of hate to give. So you can see it's going to be pretty important. Questions about that? You see how that works? I mean, it's, it's a pretty, this, you can spend a career doing that. I've got many friends that have spent careers doing nothing but looking at circadian rhythms. Fascinating stuff. Okay. 
So what are we going to do? We're going to let's see if something is controlled, has a circadian rhythm to it. Because just because behavior happens during the day doesn't mean it necessarily is controlled by your circadian clock. Right? You go to class every day, is that controlled by your circadian clock? Not really. I mean, it's more controlled by the fact that you have classes in the day. It's controlled by Dave Morasco's clock. I just heard. So, cricket chirping. That seems like something that's controlled by, that would make sense to be controlled by the circadian clock. It only happens at night. Right? So it's probably something that seems to depend on time of day. Let's see if we put crickets in constant daylight. Does it shift? Because it's going to shift over because the rhythm isn't exactly 24 hours. It's 24 and a bit to allow for, well, the fact that the days get longer and shorter, and we have to reset and reset our clock every single day. That's why right now with the days getting shorter and the, the, the sunset, sorry, sunrise happening earlier in the morning, sorry, later in the morning, it's not that big deal to us. It's when at the end of the month, when they say, oh yeah, let's move the clocks. Let's go back. Let's go back an hour now. You wake up, you go, what? Like one hour screws you up. Like I can imagine from Brazil, right? Like, I mean, if you go back right now to like, you guys are on time zone, like one hour different than us, is that right? Yeah, one hour. So that's not that you can get jet lag from that, but it's the spring in Brazil. So not only you, but you, you probably get that. Oh, it's probably cool. Somebody's going to this. You probably would get sort of jet lag if you went back to Brazil. But you'd also get more fun lag. <laughs> what with the uh, Brazil? It's Brazil! We're in Sousa Maria, it's Brazil! There's soccer games and people drinking cachaca, and it's just Brazil. <laughs> right? What's going on in Brazil? <laughs> All the soccer and awesome rum drinks. And big swords full of meat. I just watch travel shows. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's all kinds of stuff going on. People being serious, going to school. But outside, there's a song of band playing. I think that's insane. <laughs> Kidding. But it's interesting because I think that would actually would happen. Hardly any difference in the time zone, but suddenly, it's spring. So there'd be a shift there. That, God, that somebody's got to have done that. I'm going to email some of my friends to do circadian stuff and ask them because that's that'd be neat. It'd be an expensive experiment. But it would be a reason for the university to fly me to Brazil to go watch soccer games and drink those drinks. So you can see, if you take these crickets, you put them in constant, look at what happens. It starts to shift over. Because the activity is happening, that's what these little... Now, they're still shifting. Now we're going to actually... We can constant daylight, by the way. This happens to people, too. You take a person... And you just put them in constant daylight. People sign up for experiments. A lot of these are actually run by NASA because on the space uh, station, they it's completely artificial when day and night are. But they have a day and a night. They have to turn the lights out or nobody, nobody sleeps properly. But for, say, deep space missions or going all these other things, they, they might have to have the lights on all the time. NASA's actually funded research where people go into a room for 28 days. They're given the same food 
at random times, because they, so they can't detect what time it is, and they're in constant light. There's a bed, there's, they can watch TV and stuff like that, read, but you know what? You, have to, you can't watch live TV because you'll know what time it is, so you can watch DVDs and stuff. What happens to people's behavior when they go to sleep? It just shifts over and over, just like it does with crickets chirping. Us going to sleep is controlled by a circadian clock, which shouldn't surprise you. But then what you do is you go normal light dark, and look what happens. Well, just before, and look what happens. They actually, they don't start when night starts. They actually start chirping about... about two hours before nightfall. And nightfall is the lights going on. So now we know that cricket chirping is, is, is controlled by the circadian clock. So cricket chirping controlled by the circadian clock. So if, let's hear what this is called, free running. Right? Kind of like kind of like in Assassin's Creed. <laughs> the Assassin's Creed part, you have to write that down, that's a reference to the video game. Um, and then here we entrain them. Now you you entrain them with light and dark. The, there are other ways to entrain an animal. You can entrain them with food. If you feed them enough at the same time every day, you will actually then start, they will get entrained with food. You can entrain them with access to a mate. You can entrain them with exercise. And a, a friend of mine, my, my PhD supervisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, her husband, Nicholas Brzozowski, one of the sort of all-time greats in circadian rhythm research, and he discovered that you could entrain hamsters circadian rhythms using access to mates, using sex. And I remember him giving a talk and actually showed a slide of the cover of the National Enquirer that said, top researchers say sex cures jet lag. And they were talking about his work and he said, you know, and he's an English guy, I have major research grants, I've been, I've published in Nature and Science, and I've been cited by the National Enquirer, I believe my career is complete. Pretty cool. So if you ever have jet lag, just <laughs> not on the plane, please. Relax. But you should get up and exercise. Walk around. It's also good so you don't get that deep vein thrombosis and die. It's also important. It stops the dying. So we've got all kinds of these different mechanisms that are controlled by circadian rhythms. And it's actually hard to come up with something that isn't. And this is why, what happens is, say, with sleep, we get the release of, say, melatonin. And this is why melatonin works as a sleep aid. My God, that was quick, didn't it? This was the conclusion slide. Right. Okay. Behavior is controlled by internal mechanisms. So you can see, first of all, that we have these... The internal clock is usually the master mechanism, and then it will say, okay, dust breathing mechanism, kick in. Okay, chirping mechanism, kick in. Okay, running mechanism, that's what when you do a lot of this circuiting work with hamsters or rats, what you do is you just have a running wheel, and they'll just start running. If you ever had a pet rat, pet hamster, 
you realize, you quickly realize they're actually nocturnal animals, and all they do is they run in their wheel in your bedroom all night. And you cannot make them diurnal. Okay, so now you're on the day shift now. <laughs> doesn't work. doesn't work. And you just start just before nightfall, they'll start running in that wheel, and they'll do that just until you wake up in the morning. And as long as it's constant, it's fine. But if they stop a little bit, and it wakes you up, they start running again. Put them in constant darkness, those like Ah, yeah, then you put then you put them back to the light and you can trade them back the other way. They, it would take like a few days and they'd move back to running. Just trace them three points. But if you put them in constant darkness to shift their running time over, making it so they start running at 8 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock at night. That would work until you start, then you say, okay, do I have to have them in, if you have them in constant darkness, it's eventually going to shift back over to nighttime. So you think, well, what I'll do now is that, well, now they're used to running at 8 o'clock in the morning. As soon as you turn the lights on at 8 o'clock in the morning, you'll be like, oh, I'm not supposed to run now, it's bedtime. And then a couple of days, they'll shift back over and you'll entrain them, you'll have to start all over again. It seems a lot more, a lot better move would just be not to have a hamster. <laughs> it seems a lot less complicated to me. A lot less complicated. But the circadian clock is kind of like the master behavior system that controls, well, that master controller that controls all the behavior systems. Um, so external mechanisms also matter. You think about light and training circadian rhythms, you talk about the dust being available to create, for force dust bathing. Right? So we got internal and external mechanisms that in, in an animal that is, you know, like the, like Hogan uh, versus the garden point, that, you know, there's a, that's an experimental thing. But a typical animal, you have the control of internal and external mechanisms. And the interesting thing about these mechanisms, the internal mechanisms, is that oftentimes the stimulus isn't the optimal stimulus for making the animal do something. When you look at what's called a supernormal stimulus, so you look at a herring gull, I think I talked about this the other day, a herring gull will, they, they nest on um, like the beaches, eh? So what will happen is sometimes the, the eggs will roll away. So what the mother does is she goes and she gets the eggs back. How does she recognize her eggs? This is an interesting animal behavior question. So you start thinking, well, it could be size. It could be shape. It could be color. Those are probably the three possibilities. And it turns out the rounder the egg and the more polka dotted the egg, the more likely it is that she will recover it. But a round, none of them lay completely round polka dotted eggs. Most of them lay sort of blue egg shaped eggs. But for some reason, if you take a regular gull egg and a blue ball about this big with polka dots on it, they'll go after that all every time. It's the supernormal stimulus. For some reason, they're keying in on shape and they're keying in on blue dots, even though most blue don't have blue dots. It's the same thing with human faces. We have the most primate looking of all primate faces. When you look at ability to detect differences between faces in 
squirrel monkeys and in macaques. Um, they can detect individual monkeys, but they're better at detecting differences between humans. We have the most primate-looking of all primate faces. Think of what a primate looks like. It's got a nose, not so much a snout. We got more nose than any other animal, right? It doesn't have hair on its face. Look at humans compared to other monkeys and apes, other primates. It's got eyes that it can sort of manipulate and look around. We have whites of our eyes. We are more primate. We're the primatiest of the primates. So we're the supernormal stimulus. We've got every single characteristic that primates have that makes them special, as far as, say, facial features. We've got all of them in spades. A forehead. Most animals don't have a forehead, you think about it. We do. Right? They got a little sloping thing, they have a great big cortex like we have. You want to start something else or you want to stop? It doesn't make a difference. I can just start something that's easy. <laughs> so, does Maddie speak for all of you? And she just says, oh. <laughs> So She says that at dinner at home, too. So just stop, please, stop talking. All right. Okay, fine, fine. Uh, we'll continue talking about stuff on Wednesday. Thanks, guys. Could knock them down Give them a coat Give them a cap In designer clothes We salute their backs Walk away, walk away, walk away Walk away, walk away Of renown 
sand in the clouds Garden gnomes by the fishing shack Three car garage with a house attached Neighborhoods in psychic flames From an outbreak of being the same There's so much less to this Than meets the eye There's so much bliss to miss But we'll get podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.